helpful if you turned off your volume or whatever. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths we can glean from all of your word. I pray that you'll use the passage we study today to impact us, that we would have hearts that want to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so we're on this subject, so you know I had to find something of humor to go with it. Well, I read, I've never heard a good circumcision joke. They always get cut off right at the end. (laughs) There was an author of a number of vehemently anti-circumcision books who went to get his hair cut. And the barber said, what would you like? And the author said, well, just a little off the top, please. That's really funny. All right, that's all. I'm I'm going to stop there. Well, I often quote the book of Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, because for me, it is a great comfort. It's a truth where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens uh, are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And certainly when life hits us, we're going, this is not what I'd pick. This is not how I'd handle it. But the Lord knows what he's doing. So after the miraculous crossing of the flooded Jordan River, which we saw last week, word of the miracle spread throughout all the inhabitants of the land, and they were completely uh, incapacitated with fear. So here's the nation of Israel camped now in enemy territory, and God is going to have them do something so completely incapacitating to all of the men that would leave them completely vulnerable to attack. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God is never in a hurry. He knows exactly what he is doing and when he's doing it. So with chapter 5, we begin really a new division of the entire book of Joshua. It's now going to be the conquest, dealing with them taking over the land. But before God led them into conquest of the land, the sign of the covenant relationship that God had with his people needed to be obeyed and clearly renewed. So that's why it is the circumcision of Israel in verses 1 through 3. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Well, as I said before, from a human perspective, it would seem that this would have been the time for Israel to do immediate strikes when the people were so terrorized in the land The Canaanites knew all about the crossing. We know from Rahab, they knew about it from the Red Sea. And now the same God had brought this people across the Jordan into their land. And their hearts were full of fear because of what God, the God of Israel, is capable of doing. So logically, the time to strike would seem to have been immediately, but God's plan was different. Matters of obedience must first be dealt with before God would take them into this promised land, promised to Abraham. So the men are all circumcised. Consecration and obedience would precede any conquest. What a top priority it is 
restoration of the covenant relationship with God. God had called Abram, as you know, out of Ur of the Chaldees. He then sealed that covenant he made with him with a sacrifice. And then God gave circumcision as the sign of a covenant between he and Abram and his descendants. So this became the mark that this people belonged to the one true God. It served as a reminder that their bodies belonged to the Lord. They were not to be used for the sinful practices done by the Canaanites. The sign was to remind them they were to be separated from the other nations, that they were God's special people. They were to have purity in their marriage and in their worship of God. So this cutting away of the foreskin was also really a picture of cutting away sin in one's life. Circumcision was an outward sign that they belonged to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that they would submit and obey his commands. It was a clear command by God that was to be obeyed. Clearly, it had not been obeyed for 40 years. And now God spoke to Joshua with specific instructions that every male of every age was to be circumcised. Clearly, God's commands had been ignored by the generation of adults who had uh, entered uh, exod- went through the exodus and then did nothing but grumble and gripe and complain and fail to believe God. So that former generation who did not believe God would never enter the promised land. The result of their defiance and unbelief was that they'd live out the rest of their brief lives, wandering in the wilderness until they all died off but Caleb and Joshua. So God had met their every need during all of that time. The sandals never wore out. The food was provided every morning. Uh, But they complained and grumbled. Circumcision was then an operation on the body that was to be a symbol of the fact that they had a spiritual operation that took place on their heart. Deuteronomy 10.16 says, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Well, that brings us to verse 4. The reason it was necessary to even be doing this at this stage, uh, the reason why Joshua circumcised him is all the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along with the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born along the way in the wilderness Uh, they were not circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. So we learn from these verses that the entire present generation uh, had never been circumcised. Clearly, the generation of adults that perished in the wilderness thought nothing about obeying God's clear command. How ironic that the parents who were safely rescued out of slavery in Egypt all had been circumcised, and it was those same individuals then that refused to be obedient when their male sons were born and circumcised them. It becomes very clear that one can have an outward tradition of faith and yet have no heart of faith. You can be part of a church, you can be associated with the flock of God, and yet reject the authority of him in your life. Well, God swore to this generation who were a part of that great exodus, they would not see the land promised to their forefathers, 
They were prohibited from entering the promised land. They forfeited that joy because of their unbelief. I wonder how much joy we forfeit in our lives because of our unbelief. However, the promise of God is what remains sure. In spite of human unbelief, he would keep his promise to that next generation. What a great reminder that human rebellion and unbelief can never nullify or annul the promises that God has made. So, besides being a military leader, Joshua's resume is now going to include being a moil. You know, a moil is the Jewish man who comes, the rabbi who comes and circumcises your baby boy. And there's a whole ceremony. It's a big family event. So he can add that to his resume. Uh, Normally, every male child was circumcised the eighth day when their blood was at the best to coagulate. Uh, eight days after their birth. So it had been neglected now, as we have seen. Therefore, all the boys and all the men had to place themselves under the covenant of God made with Israel before entering that promised land. Joshua took knives made with flint rocks to, again, circumcise all the males. This is not a reference to a second time of doing this to the same males. Wow, that'd be rough. But rather, it means this ritual was now being done as it had been formally practiced but neglected. The location for the procedure is known as Gibeath Haraloth, which means hill of foreskins. An appropriate name. You figure it's a lot of men getting and babies, boys, and all that. So, anyways, this new generation was replaced, uh, that replaced their rebel parents and grandparents needed this mark on their flesh before God was going to bring them into the land and bless them. Clearly, having this done after the time of infancy, had to be a whole lot more painful and difficult to endure. Therefore, the men, we read, remained in Gilgal until they completely healed. How easy it would have been for the people of the land to come and attack them, as I said, while recovering from the surgical procedure. But God used the great fear that they already had to just keep them away. We read in verse 8 that they remained in the camp until they were healed. And the result of this obedience was now the Lord said, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is Gilgal to this day. Apparently the Egyptians had mocked Israel and said that their God had taken them out, of the des- out into the desert just to kill them, according to Exodus 32.12. <clears throat> but when they obeyed the command to be circumcised, God removed the reproach of Egypt. The place was then named Gilgal, which means rolling, to show that God rolled away the reproach of Egypt from Israel at that place. You may wonder, what's all the big fuss regarding circumcision anyway? In the New Testament sermons uh, given by Stephen, before he was stoned as the very first martyr, we read that it is God who gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. It was a part of the covenant that guaranteed a continuation of Abraham's seed and possession of the land, according to Genesis 17. You recall that when God told this to Abraham, that he immediately, Abraham immediately obeyed, and he was circumcised, and everyone who were, is in his family. The act of circumcision symbolized complete separation from the widely practiced sins of adultery, fornication, and sodomy going on all around them. But it went beyond that, as I mentioned earlier, as the need for spiritual circumcision of the heart is really what is presented. This was a divine command from God. Joshua understood how important it was because obedience to God's word is important. Paul tells us in Colossians 2.11 that a believer in Jesus who has come to him 
put their faith and confidence in him for salvation, has circumcised their hearts, that moment of their faith in Christ. Obedience to God's command really is the key. Before this people celebrated Passover, they needed to have their hearts right with the Lord. So that brings us to the next thing. God continues to provide for the nation. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. And on that day, after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna. But they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. So it's hard to imagine all of this time, 40 plus years, you got quail, you got this miraculous bread-like substance being on the ground six days a week. All of this time, the people had their food needs met in a miraculous way, really, by the Lord. But now the manna stopped. But God, in reality, was still providing for these two million plus people to eat. He had provided miraculously for decades with manna, but now they ate bread from the land, and that would become the normal way he would provide through ordinary means. But it is still his provision, whether it's from manna from heaven or grain growing from the ground in Canaan. God is in the ex- extraordinary as much as he is in the ordinary and mundane. His gifts of food, a job to pay bills, safety when you drove here today, clothes to put on, the ability to sit down and have a meal with your loved ones, on and on it goes, are all God's provisions in ordinary days as we seek to serve him. So after entering the land, uh, the nation of Israel now observed the Feast of Passover. This had been instituted by God 40 years earlier when the angel of death passed over the Jewish family home so that their oldest son lived. They put blood on the post of their door, as you recall. This was supposed to be an annual feast to remind the nation of how God had redeemed them and set them free from the bondage of Egypt. It was a memorial to be kept continually, according to Exodus 12, 14. But again, we have the rebellion and defiance of that generation who came out of Egypt. They didn't observe the Passover. They didn't circumcise their sons. On the day after the Passover, the manna stopped, ending a 40-year miracle. And even though this was an amazing miracle, this disobedient people, as you know, complained when they missed the food back in Egypt, that whole generation. And now this new generation is entering the promised land, and God is still going to sustain them with food, but in a different way. And that brings us to the captain, the new captain, the Lord himself. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord of hosts said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the rest of this conversation is next week in the next chapter. That's where we'll pick up. But as we begin our study uh, in this next section in the book of Joshua, the focus is going to be on the conquest of the promised land. 
And I want to remind you that God in the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. He's not the God of death and war and bad and the God of love in the New Testament. He is the same God. He is always the same. It might be hard to read about entire people groups being um, exterminated, wiped out by Israel as ordered by the Lord. But it's important to understand the reality that God does judge sin. And in Genesis 15, 16, God told Abraham that his descendants would not inherit Canaan immediately, but would come back to the fourth, in the fourth generation, he said, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the truth here is that God is patient and had been patient with the present people of this land for century after century, but when their, their sins reach a limit and he will deal with it. He would then use Abram's descendants to bring the judgment on the land. The vile sexual perversions, the hideous activities that went with the false worship of their gods, the sacrificing of their own precious little babies into fires to their false gods, all these things had to come to a stop. God would use Israel as the instrument to bring about judgment on a people who buried themselves in their evil. Conquest, then, is not about cruel, unkind war here in our study, but rather it's about a very patient God and a just God who must deal with sin because it is who he is. He is holy. He is just. He can't look away from vile sin. He could not look the other way with all of the injustice and perversion going on for centuries. He is patient, but then he will deal with sin. And I, you know, I think people struggle with this aspect of God's holiness and justice, but you have no problem with your own sense of justice. If your loved one was murdered, raped, abused, you'd want justice done. And that's our human pathetic version of justice. How much more a perfectly holy God cannot just look away. This is true of him today as well. We are not the nation of Israel entering the promised land, nor are we the instruments used by God to bring about uh, justice and judgment for sin. God is the same, though, yesterday, today, and forever, and he will deal with sin. If it's not now, it will be later. That is why we are in such a desperate need of salvation, ladies. That's the whole point. We may not be involved in criminal activity, but the truth is our hearts are still hearts of self-will. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I mean, the point is we've all gone our own way. That's the definition from God's perspective of sin. Hearts of rebellion to his holy standards. We're just going to do what it is we do. But thankfully, God provided a way to have sin punished because he is holy and he must punish sin. And that plan was that he himself would come and bear the wrath that we deserve for our own sin. When Jesus hung on that cross and bore the wrath of God so that God's holiness and justice was completely satisfied as sin was paid for and it was punished. The issue is he offers this as a gift of free salvation. It's not something we work and earn because we have no righteousness of ourselves. <laughs> All our righteousness, scripture says, are like filthy rags. So the best we have to offer is still filthy rags before a holy God. But Jesus Christ made a way to be right with God the Father, with his dealing with sin and providing out of his heart of love. 
Well, as Joshua is about to begin the conquest of the land, God himself shows up to encourage him. When Joshua sees this man, he appears as a warrior. He has a sword and identifies himself as captain of Yahweh's army, captain of the host of the Lord. When Joshua heard this, he, he's falling on his face to the ground. And he asks this man, he speaks to him, and this, he is then told, remove your sandals because the place you are standing is now holy ground, which is a real clue that this isn't just another angel. This is the commander of the army of the Lord. The same term, interestingly, used um, in Isaiah 9-6 when we sing at uh, time about the Prince of Peace. This is the same expression. This is the military commander of all of God's angelic army who are at his disposal. When Joshua hears this, he's on the, on the ground with his face and he worshiped, realizing this is the angel of the Lord. The appearance of this man, as you know, is called a theophany, a term for appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament before his incarnation as a baby in the New Testament. So this angel of the Lord is seen throughout the Old Testament in many places. He appears to Abraham. He appears to, I love that he, the condescension, that he would come and appear to an Egyptian slave named Hagar in the wilderness and comfort her and her son. And then he goes to the mother of Samson when she's out working. Uh, this is amazing, his condescension to come and deal with people. But in this theophany, we see him as the commander who has a sword drawn, pointing to the fact that judgment is coming to this land. And this encounter with Joshua is then the basis for the conquest that we will study in chapters 6 through 12. Joshua may be the human commander leading the army of Israel, but it is the Lord himself who is preparing to lead his people to conquer the land. It's interesting that Moses had that encounter with the burning bush back in Exodus 3, and he was told to take off his sandals because of the ground being holy as well. And Joshua immediately acknowledged the Lord and submitted to his leadership. In Deuteronomy 9.5, the Lord told Israel they would be given the land of promise and that he would drive out the people from those nations. He says, on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. So, as we've already seen, this land is filled with corrupt uh, pagan people whose time of judgment for their sin has finally arrived. Everything was now set for the conquest of the land. And unfortunately, there's a chapter division put in here. But in chapter 6, verse 2, the conversation that was going on between the angel of the Lord, uh, the captain of the host of heaven, and Joshua will continue. And the Lord is going to give Joshua specific orders of what to do to defeat Jericho. Joshua's first uh, recognized God's very presence before him, and it's more important to recognize God's position than to know every detail of his plan. We can get so fixated on his guidance and what he wants us to do in a situation, and then we fail to see it is critical to be in a right relationship with the one who is to guide us. He has everything under control. What a great encouragement must have been for Joshua. You know what? He's not alone as the leader of the nation. We saw back in chapter 1 that God had promised to be with Joshua and how the people had prayed the Lord would be with Joshua. And now the captain of the Lord's army, his armies, whether in heaven or on earth, are standing there talking to him. Joshua was clearly reminded here that he was second in command. Jesus showed up that day in order to lead. 
And though the land was occupied by those who did not believe, this place had become holy ground because Jesus was standing there. And Joshua listened, and he would follow the clear commands of his captain, which we will see next week. So what lessons can we take away from this chapter? Well, first of all, obedience really does matter to God. Parents and grandparents are either role models and examples of honoring the Lord and obeying his word, or they discourage obedience because of their own failure or desire to care about it. We saw today in an entire generation walking in absolute disobedience to God's command in a covenant relationship with him. Their parents didn't obey, and they saw no need to obey until this time. Next, sometimes obeying the Lord causes pain. It is always the right thing to do, but it's not always the easiest thing to do. Once faced with the truth of what God's word tells you to do, one must make a decision then whether to obey, obey the Lord or continue, as Isaiah said, to go your own way. Thirdly, those who came out of Egypt had followed the Lord in being circumcised while they were slaves in Egypt, but in the miraculous delivery out of Egypt, they were so caught up in their grumbling and complaining and ungratefulness and lack of belief, they lost interest altogether in obeying the Lord. You know, sin has a way of doing that. <laughs> you really, the more you allow sin to dominate you and you don't repent, you don't change, you just continue, um, God's word becomes very unimportant. And clearly that was the case. No Passover observed regularly and failure to keep a covenant by circumcising their infant boys. There was no excuse for this. Their failure caused their now adult children to have to suffer pain because of their parents' apathy. Fourth, it's never too late to do the right thing. Better to obey late in life than to continue ignoring God's word. And next, God's timing and his ways certainly are different than ours, aren't they? But the, being the sovereign God of the universe who sees the end from the beginning, we must rest in the fact that his thoughts are higher, his ways are higher, his plans. He knows what he's doing, and we sure, sure don't. God sometimes intervenes to provide in the most unusual of ways, but most often it is in the mundane of everyday life that God provides our needs. And God is holy and just, and he is so patient. We must not let his patience with rebellious and sinful people lull us into thinking there will never be any consequences. God patiently waited for the Canaanite people to change their ways, but his patience has a limit. Judgment was imminent. And lastly, you know, we are never alone in facing the battles or storms that come into our lives. The same Jesus who came to Joshua speaks to us through his word and equips us to do his will. He is the captain of the host of heaven. He is our refuge and strength in a time of trouble. He is holy, he's wise, he's good. And think of it, he has his whole, the whole host of army in heaven, the angelic beings he created there to do his bidding. We have no idea how many times they've been dispatched to protect us to do something on our behalf. He is the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the principles that we can glean from your word. Lord, I pray that each one here would see how critical it is that we obey you, even in the smallest of things. Because when we fail 
to obey you in little things, then it's easier to disobey you in the next bigger thing and the next and the next until suddenly we can be like this generation that totally ignored your word, never taught it to their kids, just lived a life of complaining and unbelief. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's never come to you, come to the end of themselves and realize that they need to come to you and repent, turn from the sins they're aware of and call on you for salvation. Lord, open their eyes to see that you, the Lord of hosts, are standing here ready with open arms to forgive based on your love displayed on the cross. I thank you for each lady who's here. I pray that you'll protect them as they go their ways and go about their busy days, Lord. I pray that we would have hearts that want to obey and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.